largest indoor space available for human gatherings on the colonized planetoid called Shubra, satellite of a sun that had never been seen from Earth. Thirty meters away from where father and daughter stood, at the front end of the long aisle, the clergy and the witnesses were waiting. And, of course, the groom was up there, too, Gujar Sidoruk, looking even bigger and bulkier than ever in his formal citizen's robes. Gujar was gazing back at his bride-to-be and at her father, as if he, independent young man that he was, were also waiting to be told what had to happen next. The first moment of the alarm seemed to be protracted endlessly. It was as if the warning had already sounded for a long time, but these people, having committed themselves to a wedding, could not quite make up their minds to respond to it. Before the long moment was over, most of the roomful of people were looking at Niles Domingo, too. Nine-tenths of the population of the colonized planetoid, some two hundred people, were assembled in this hall today. With them were twenty or thirty visiting neighbors, people from other small inhabited rocks within the Milk Pale Nebula. A handful of the neighbors lived virtually next door, on Chubra's unnamed moon, but the others had traveled up to a full day to get here astrogating their way half a billion kilometers through nebular space. Occupying almost as much floor space in the huge room as the people did was a small forest of plant life, some of the forest's individual components towering over the humans' heads. The permanent flora of the chamber, imported from Earth and elsewhere, had been augmented for today's occasion by extra greenery and a million flowers joyously freighted in from another colony, Yerkala. On Shubra, as on most of the other small colonized rocks that revolved around certain suns within the Milk Pale Nebula, outdoor ceremonies were rarely practical. The great domed room brought the assembly as close to the out-of-doors as was feasible. Overhead, a clear hemisphere of force and crystal held back the whiteness and the sunset clouds of the long winter night, really astronomically distant folds of the nebula that here made up the entirety of sky and space. In only a standard year and a half, it would be spring on this portion of the slow-orbiting planetoid surface. The night outside was one of atmospheric snow as well as nebular display. The artificial gravity imposed by the colonists upon their rock attracted, among other things, gases enough to form an atmosphere from this peculiar sky. Last night's a terrible vision concerning things from the sky had come to Domingo during sleep. He knew that it had been only a nervous father's dream. A natural phenomenon, and he supposed common enough, especially on the eve of a daughter's wedding. But this was real. Alert stations, everyone! Domingo called out in a firm, loud voice as the audio warning paused. It had to pause, or voice communication would have been impossible. The alarm had killed all other sounds. In the sudden tomb-like silence of the huge room, the mayor's order sounded like a shout. The pause brought on by momentary shock was over. The illusion that there had been any real hesitation about responding to the alarm dissolved. Even before the last word of the mayor's order had sounded through the room, most of the adults present were scrambling for the exits. People went running in every direction to reach their variously scattered alert stations. The score and more of guests who had come to the wedding from nearby colonies were as accustomed to alerts as were the citizens of Shubra. The visitors knew their duty and dispersed wordlessly, rushing to the ships that had brought them here. 
When the sound of the alarm came back, it was at a more moderate level. People once alerted had to be allowed to think and talk. Giving his daughter's hand one last squeeze, Domingo dropped it and set off at a loping run. He knew, as firmly as a man could know anything, that he would be speaking to Mamio again within moments, as soon as he had discovered the reason for this damned alarm. Certainly he ought to have at least one more chance to speak to her again before he had to launch a ship. Running through the familiar corridors of his own small world, first above ground and then below, Domingo pulled off the formal citizen's robe that custom had required him to put on over his ordinary garments at his daughter's wedding, and bundled it under his arm. He would stuff the garment away somewhere in his ship when he got there, but for the moment it had already been forgotten. He intended to run all the way to his ship without a pause. In the small confines of the settlement, neither he nor anyone else had far to go to reach their posts. The tunnel flashed by him with the speed of his pounding legs. His eyes were fixed ahead in the direction of the operations deck of the spaceport. He allowed only one thought that was in any sense a distraction to intrude itself upon him as he ran. The gods help someone, whoever did it, if this turns out to be a joke. Such a thing, he supposed, was remotely possible. Rough humor was still popular out here on the frontier, especially in connection with weddings. Or it could be a simple false alarm, some flaw in human guardian or in equipment, though both types of trouble were uncommon. It was certainly not an ordinary practice drill. No one would or could have called one at this time at the instant the mayor's daughter's wedding was about to start. The cause of the alarm would be brought to light soon enough. Whatever the cause, no one, no colonists anywhere in the Milk Pale Nebula, ever failed to take such an alarm seriously or delayed in reacting to it. Everyone who lived in the Milk Pale knew, with more than intellectual awareness, what berserkers were. Still moving at a run, among other men and women still running with him, Domingo entered the great rocky cave of the space harbor. Here, too, were the orange lights, the pulsating throb of the alarm. In a few moments more, the mayor had reached the interior dock where the Syrian Pearl was drifting gently, waiting for him. His new ship was a smooth volume of metal, more a flattened ovoid than a sphere, its overall size a trifle greater than that of the huge crystal room he had just left. Still, the ship was small inside the enormous carved-out cave chamber of the port. Like some of the other more advanced craft nearby, his new ship had reacted automatically to the alarm by altering its own gravitic balance enough to rise up from the dock, starting to prepare itself for launching. The pearl, pearl-colored in the brilliant lights around it, its silent space-warping engines barely energized, was keeping station now about a meter above the deck. Domingo knew that his ship's computer would already be counting itself down through the preliminary pre-launch checklist. It would wait for human orders before it went beyond the pre-launch phase. The mayor was not a large man, but he was strong and active. He swung himself up and into his ship through the waiting hatchway. Moments later, he was throwing himself into his command chair in the center of the ship. The command chair was centered in a small hollow space whose inner surface was all pads, displays, controls. The space was physically isolated from the other crew stations, as they were from one another. In it, there might have been room for two people to stand beside the single chair. 
The cushioned, built-in command seats closed its panels and pads around him as he sat down, making a snug fit. The manual controls in front of him now were only auxiliary devices for use in odd emergencies. He reached for a brown circlet of what looked like cloth that was attached to his seat by a slender cord. By pulling the band cap-like onto his head, he fitted himself to his headlink, through which he interacted with the ship. The ship was now attuned to certain components of the electrical activity of his brain. Now, essentially by ordered thought, almost as if by telepathy, Domingo could exert direct control over all shipboard systems. He began immediately, turning on, without physical motion, several of the viewing devices in front of him. One of these presented him with the holographic image of the head and shoulders of a middle-aged man named Strozzi. Strozzi, the colony's current duty officer, was now standing somewhere in the defense center, deep underground with a wall of deep gray rock showing behind him. Report! Domingo snapped. Strozzi quickly gave assurances to the mayor and to the hundred or so other people who by now were also listening that the alarm was real. The duty officer hastened to add that the danger to Shubra did not appear to be immediate. He would have called a red alert for that. What then? A robot courier arrived here about five minutes ago from Liaoning. That was another colonized planetoid of the same sun, some twelve hours away at the current orbital positions of both bodies. The message is that they're under berserker attack there, and they want immediate assistance. Attacker's strength? One unit only, but they say it's overwhelming their defenses. Domingo swore again, once more blaspheming the names of ancient and almost forgotten gods and demigods. Let me guess. The duty officer relaxed from the formal posture he had been holding, as if managing any prolonged dialogue that way were too much of a strain. Guess if you want. They think that it's Leviathan. When the name was spoken, others among the people listening swore. Domingo scarcely heard them. He was already busy thinking, trying to make plans. Strozzi went on methodically with his report. He already had the Shubrin ground defense system's radio receivers scanning the communication spectrum for more word from Liening, but there was nothing coming in. That was not necessarily significant. Between worlds such a distance apart in nebular space, it was usually more surprising when radio communications were open than when they failed. Hence the reliance by everyone in the milk pail on swift, small robotic courier ships for quick, dependable communication across all but the smallest interplanetary gulfs. Strozzi also reported that he had already dispatched a Shubrun robot courier to the Space Force at Base 425. The duty officer had programmed it to pass on word of the reported attack, and had added the information that Shubra planned to respond to the call for help. Their response would probably be taken for granted anyway. Very good, Domingo said, and began to issue orders. Put our ground defenses on red alert, Strozzi, but cancel the extra alarm. I'm sure we're all awake already. Yes, sir. The duty officer looked away, his hands doing something off stage. Red alert is now in effect. Domingo looked at another display inside his armored nest. All Shubrin defense ships prepare to launch and report to me as soon as you're ready. We're going to relieve Leoning. 
Visitor ships, check in with me. Now the mayor commander divided his own personal communications display. In one sector before him, the faces of visitors appeared, beginning to report as ordered from their own ships. There was Spence Benkovic, organizer of a tiny private colony on a moon of Shubra. There was Elena Mosseriel, the leader of the delegation from De Gamma, a large planetoid of a different sun. Here came the Munana people, someone else and someone else again from different planetoids and moons, from very different and comparatively major colonies, all of them within a day's space travel from Shubra. The visitors could have elected to remain to take some part in the defense of Shubra, or to add the firepower of their ships to the relief expedition to Leaening. But, as Domingo had expected, all of them chose to depart to carry warning to their own homes. He, in their place, would have done the same thing. All were quickly cleared for launching. My own crew, check in. The lifelike images of their familiar faces appeared one by one on the holographic stage in front of the captain. The stage was again split, leaving room for the simultaneous display of other information, in particular the checklist display showing how far each one of the Shubrin ships was from readiness to launch. Even as Domingo's own crew members reported in, they were already wearing their headlinks, busy running the Syrian Pearl's various systems up to speed. Chakuchin here! The stage showed optimistic features framed in blonde hair and beard, the face of a large and solidly built young man. Poinceau aboard. Henrik Poinceau was a slightly older man, smaller and darker than Chakuchin, at the same time more crisp and businesslike. I'm here, Niles. That was Apolina Suslova, a compactly built, attractive young woman, wide-eyed as usual, her wild-tossed hair giving an erroneous impression of disorganization. Like most of the other crew members, she had on a mixture of wedding guest finery and hastily added shipboard gear and clothing. I can dare in. This was an old friend of Domingo's, deep-voiced, calm, and almost leisurely. His black hair and brows were bold-looking to match the rest of his angular face. Ikander Baja was reclining in his acceleration couch with his broad shoulders turned at an angle. As usual, at the beginning of action, he gave the impression that he was not taking any of these matters of routine preparation too seriously, but he was ready to enjoy what was going to follow. Wilma checking in. I was aboard before you were, Niles. Then the pretty red-haired wife of Simeon Chakuchin corrected herself in this formal situation. I mean, Captain...